Bill Whitaker retired a few years ago from his job as a CEO at a large agricultural company to allow more time for motorcycle traveling. He seems to have an insatiable thirst for learning, and at 67 years old, he's fired up about discovering more, more about the world and the people that inhabit it. Today, a conversation about motorcycle travel and one man's unique perspective on discovery. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helgit Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Hart. Chris Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. A few years back, Bill Whitaker turned 65 years old. Now, at the time, he was working for a large agricultural company called Simplot. Simplot was, and still is, doing business around the world. Bill was their CEO, chief executive officer, and everything was working just fine. But in Bill's mind, he needed to retire. The need for retirement wasn't the traditional one, the one you usually associate with age and retirement, you know, the slowing down for the golden years in life, maybe doing some gardening around the house, vacations to beachside resorts and warmer climates. Now, for Bill Whitaker, it was more a desire to be exposed to the weather, the heat, the cold, the dust, the mud, rough roads, remote locations, adversity, foreign languages, tough border crossings. You see, Bill had been bitten by the bug and bitten hard by the motorcycle travel bug. So Bill's reason for retiring well, to free up his schedule for more motorcycle travel, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Bill Whitaker, and uh, I'm from McCall, Idaho. And I um, was the CEO of the JR Simplot Company. It's this fairly significant agricultural company. And uh, a couple of years ago, I retired. And I retired so that I could have more scheduling flexibility to um, go travel the world on motorcycle. Bill, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thanks, Jim. That's pretty good. You retired to go motorcycling. Well, yeah, I suppose that, you know, I didn't, I didn't retire because I felt like it was, um, because you, you know, you're traditional, you're age 65 and you, that's not why I retired. I retired literally. So I had more control over my schedule and I could kind of pursue the next, uh, chapter. And that was to go experience, um, a lot of the world anyway, on motorcycle. You're, you're also on the board of backcountry discovery routes. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's really important to me. It's, you know, I think we all have a give back time of our life. 
Uh, I've been riding adventure bikes for roughly 15 years and, um, and being involved with BDR has been important to me because it re- we really do help people travel in the backcountry and provide routes and, and tracks and information uh, and uh, something that I really enjoy and I really enjoy the people that, uh, that I'm involved with there. How did you get, uh, end up being on the board of directors? I think more than, uh, you know, I took, I, I knew the people that were involved with BDR and, um, uh, Paul Gillian, Tom Myers, Bryce Stevens. So I knew these guys and, uh, and I kept telling them, boy, we got to do Idaho. We have to do Idaho. And, um, uh, next thing I know, they said, Hey, why don't you come on the board? We'd like to have you. And, and I was glad to do that. Hmm. But, and you also, as well as this, you do something to do with COVID testing? Well, yeah. You know, what's interesting. Uh, I was in, I was actually riding in uh, New Zealand and, uh, in March and my wife was actually, um, doing uh, long distance trekking over, um, in New Zealand. And so we, and so all of a sudden we, you know, heard more and more about COVID. So we came home about the middle of March and, uh, and kind of walked into the U S being, you know, at kind of crisis levels it felt like, and it truly was. Um, and, uh, a, a small group of us got together and led by a couple of really good friends of mine and suggested that, um, you know, maybe we could make a difference through our business contacts and our business resources, uh, maybe some university resources. And uh, we started, literally started a testing company. It's a not-for-profit and um, and we are, I, we play a significant role for testing in Idaho. What does that mean, testing? Like, what does that involve? Well, it really involves making sure we have the resources for the test kits and also have the resources for laboratory space. And sometimes you have to pay in advance. Sometimes you have to reserve space. And then also the distribution of these test kits and uh, making sure that we literally have places for people to test efficiently and effectively and not wait five, six, seven you know, even eight or 10 days to get the results. Uh, so it's, it's a fairly involved uh, process. Uh, we have a very talented executive director that um, she knows how to get things done and she knows how to make things happen. So I think, I think it's been a pretty successful venture for the state. Uh, but I'm telling you, when it comes right down to it, uh, none of us do enough testing. You know, I don't know, so any state's doing enough testing. That's incredible. I always think of that as being government and to find out that some individuals have got together to make a company to do this. Uh, uh, is that common? Well, no, I don't think so. And I think, I think more than anything is uh, we looked at the state, not to be critical of the state, but we looked at the state and realized between task force and inefficiencies and bureaucracies uh, that whether it's the state of Idaho or any state in the United States or even Canada for that matter, uh, we decided we could probably cut through a lot of that. And so we moved quickly and, um, 
and and made a difference. I literally, in a matter of weeks, we were uh, doing antibody testing. And in just a matter of a week or two later, we were doing full-blown uh, COVID live virus testing. So it, it, we made a difference in a hurry. But more, than, more, more important than anything is we're making a difference now. Um, and, uh, and it feels good to be able to make that kind of contribution. What else do you do in your spare time, Bill? <laughs> well, you know, you're, you, you get, you're on, I'm on a couple of boards and, um, and I spend, uh, quite a lot of time, um, you know, just kind of figuring out the next route or the next trip, reading blogs on whether it's Africa or Bhutan or whatever to see, uh, where I go from here. And, uh, and, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, for some reason I started collecting, it's the 40th anniversary of the BMW GS motorcycle in that 40 year time frame. there's six models. So I've been collecting those motorcycles. So, um, I spent a little time doing that. And at the same time, I've got to pick them up and get them here do some work on them, so on and so forth. You started off by saying, you know, describing yourself as, as retired, you were retired, retired CEO from Simplot. Who are you now? Well, like what, what is the bill now? I mean, you're no longer employed with that. You're doing your own thing. Obviously you're still very motivated and very driven to do a lot of things. So who are you now? You know, I think right now, Jim, that I'm, um, I'm kind of in this uh, learning phase of my uh, career, life career. I mean, we all kind of operate off the business of life. And um, and I think my business of life right now is is kind of, I, I want to capture, There's it's real important to give back. And it's real important to be involved where um, you can make a contribution. Uh, but I think it's also really important for me to make sure that I step up my learning experiences uh, wherever I can and whenever I can. And, uh, and, and that is done, you know, with me through travel. What do you mean? Just the desire to learn new things? Well, I think so. Right. I mean, you know, here's the thing. We, um, we can all think about things and we can have whether a history book or a, uh, a, you know, nonfiction book or whatever, um, cable news, we can learn a lot, uh, by just kind of paying attention that way. Uh, but I don't think, I think the way we feel about things is really more important than we, than the way we think about things. And that's actually, something that I picked up reading Simon Sinek and, uh, and where he talks about this a lot. And I think for me to do that, I really want to experience, I want to have more than just read the book or watch the YouTube video or whatever. I, I would prefer to go experience whenever I can. What do you mean the difference between feel and the way we think about something. To, to me, they'd be inextricably connected. Yeah, well, they, they can be. Uh, and for a lot of people, they, they really are. But, you know, until you can, when you evolve from just thinking about, uh, let's just say the uh, Battle of Antietam 
and in in the Civil War, and and you think about what that looks like, but until you walk through the battlegrounds and uh, and imagine tens of thousands of soldiers killed and know where they were. That's a feel to me. That's more than just thinking about it. So one thing to, to read the guidebook is another thing to go and sit on the beach and, and really have that feeling. So when you think back, you know what it feels right. like. Right, right. I get it. I get what you're saying there. What, where does motorcycling come in for you? Have you always been a rider? Well, yeah. So, you know, I started riding, you know, kind of the dirt bike stuff. I grew up in Missouri, rode dirt bikes, uh, uh, always had Harleys and... Um, and the Harleys were pretty important socially. I mean, you know, dirt bikes and Harleys and I'd go ride socially and do the bike nights and do the whatevers like that. Um, but something happened to me when I shifted over to, um, you know, someplace along the way. I watched the uh, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman film Long Way Around. Long Way Around stimulated me into uh, saying, I really am, I mean, it really motivated me to uh, engage with motorcycles on an ADV bike. And I think that was in 2004 when that movie came out. Um, At the same time, I was at the BMW dealership almost simultaneously in Boise, Idaho. And there were two guys circumnavigating uh, North America on BMW 1150 GSAs, and uh, and I just sat around and visited with them how it worked, what happened, you know, tell me about your camping gear, asked a hundred questions, probably made a nuisance of myself. Um, but I walked away and thought, that's what I want to do. And, uh, and now I didn't get rid of the Harley and didn't get rid of the dirt bike for a while. And now it's pretty much all adventure bikes for me. So you're at the BMW dealer because you saw a long way around and you're sort of looking at the machine that did it. Is that, that was the deal and you're thinking of getting one? Well, I think so. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that was the concept. What's the ironic part about this? I went over and bought a, a KTM. I bought the 950 that it just can't, it, it just was coming on the market and I, th- I think I bought the first one, maybe in Idaho, I don't know, but I bought one of the early ones and uh, kept it for a couple of years and had to move to BMW and, and pretty well been BMW ever since. Why had to move to BMW? I, I don't know if I want to go down this lane, but, <laughs> but I'm sort of curious. <laughs> well, you don't have to. <laughs> but no, I think, uh, I, I think it's um, for the type of writing that I was doing, uh, I I bought a BMW. I really liked it. Uh, I remember riding a couple of big rides with, you know, fully loaded camping gear where, um, you know, a, a few thousand miles anyway, at that time was a big ride for me. And for some reason, just kind of sh- morphed into BMW. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have another KTM. I'd do it in a split second. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think anybody who listens to this show very much, will hear all kinds of people say it doesn't matter about the, the name brand of the bike or, or the model of the bike right. for that matter that's, for the adventure. That's, that, that's the way I feel about it. So is that your segue into that KTM that you bought your segue into adventure riding? Like, did you actually start traveling at this point? 
or, or was it more adventure riding? And, and I, I know I mentioned to you before that we, we've sort of been talking a raw or the show about this, this difference between the two that we're sort of seeing emerge adventure riding, being people who ride more of the dirt, the aggress- aggressive stuff, maybe shorter trips, but it's more about the ride and where motorcycle adventure travel would be more about the adventure where you go easy on your bikes. You want it to last lots of miles. You're not going to beat it. You, you want to be careful of your body, that sort of thing. So is, is that what you end up doing? You end up going into one of those? Well, yeah. So I think the way I started is, um, my Harley friends and dirt bike friends, uh, I was the only one that I knew with an adventure bike and, um, all my buddies had, um, you know, Harleys and dirt bikes. And I was the only one with the, with the adventure bike at the time. Uh, so I rode by myself a lot and, and was it adventure riding? Probably it was an adventure to, for me because I was doing things in Idaho, Washington, Oregon, this Pacific Northwest area that I'd never done before. The um, But you know what's interesting, Jim, is, is as I rode by myself, I learned a lot. And then I kind of every, every once in a while, somebody would ride with me and then maybe two people would ride with me. And then I'd hear about somebody organizing a ride in Northern California or something, and I'd join that group. And I think that's the way I kind of morph from this kind of solo riding to riding with other people. I still ride by myself uh, frequently. Uh, But the difference between adventure motorcycling and adventure travel uh, for me, they, I, I, I like it when they come together. I want to be able to do both. I want to go, uh, do adventure motorcycle travel, but I want it to feel, uh, I, you know, I always joke with people all the time. I'm not an expert writer, but I write expert stuff. Uh, I know what expert writers look like. I'm not one of those people, but I seem to be able to write expert stuff. Uh, with friends of mine that are expert writers. Um, and so I, I like it when it comes together and, um, and almost to the point that you can't tell the difference. You said that you, you sort of more from riding alone to riding with other people and you learned a lot when you're riding alone. What, what's the difference there and why are you now riding with, uh, groups instead? Well, uh, you know, it's, you know, when you're riding alone and you have a problem, uh, you kind of have to figure it out on your own. Um, you know, I, am not a skillful mechanic. In fact, I joke with people, I can take anything apart. It's putting it back together is the problem. And it's always um, the tough side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me it is. <laughs> and I don't profess to be a mechanic and, and I want to be just enough so that I can get myself out of a jam. So I learn a lot. I learn a lot, whether it was, whether it was about GPS or maps or trails or, uh, water crossings. You know, when you look at a water crossing and you're by yourself and you wait out there and it's above your knee, um, you, you know, you, you have to put yourself in a frame of mind that says, do I really want to do this and do I want to take this chance? And um, an awful lot of the time you say yes and an awful lot of the time you say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's nothing more than temperature and where do I need to be tonight? So.
We're going to take a quick break. I've got a couple of things to tell you about. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, Expedition 65. That may ring a bell with you. Stay with us. The Atlas Throttle Lock is an amazing little invention. It clamps onto your, your throttle side of your motorcycle and your handlebar. It has two buttons on it. It's to hold your throttle position. It's not to lock your throttle so nobody can steal it. So some people can get confused there. It holds your throttle position. And I'll tell you, this is a beautiful, sweet piece of equipment. I have one on my bike. It just clamps on and away you go. It's got two buttons on it. One for engage, one for disengage. So you get up to speed. You want to take a bit of a break from holding your throttle. You press the engage button. If you start to hit a hill where you need a little bit more throttle, you don't disengage. Just roll a little more throttle on. Going down the hill, you can back the throttle off. As soon as you let go of it, it holds the new position. When you're done using it, you just press the disengage button. This thing works really, really well. I, I've always had throttle locks on my bike for many, many years. And, and the one that I had last was a, a very inexpensive one. It was so simple. I liked it due to its simplicity. But now that I've tried the Atlas throttle lock, I would I would never go back, of course. Have a look at their Atlas Throttle Lock. It's, their website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's atlasthrottlelock.com. Changing out your stock foot pegs for a set of professionally designed, quality manufactured foot pegs is probably one of the most satisfying and practical mods you can do for yourself. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, but more importantly, the IMS pegs have been designed from the ground up to give you the added leverage and comfort, but without affecting the ergonomics of the motorcycle negatively. And this is super important because you can add width in the wrong places with a foot peg, and then you'll gain some leverage, but you'll lose some of your accessibility to your rear brake and your shift lever, not to mention possibly adding uh, additional exposure to your toes when you're using those levers. IMS Products has been in, in business since 1976. The company has always, and it still is, run by motorcyclists and ex-racers, and they design their foot pegs, as I said, from the ground up to maximize the benefits for adventure riding and using all of those years of experience in what they build. They're made in the USA. They're warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. few years ago, you were, you were part of Expedition 65, which uh, we, we did a, a piece on here on Adventure Rider Radio. We had a couple of people that were on that. That was interesting because that was put together with Jim Hyde from Rawhide Adventures. And, and as a matter of fact, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to this episode, to the Expedition 65 episode, so people can go and find that one and listen to it. But that was an interesting trip because that wasn't a um, it wasn't a guided tour. It was more of a, a guy who runs guided tours putting together. It's kind of an adventure for for a bunch of people. You were on that. How did you get on that to begin with? Huh. Well, first of all, Jim's a a really good friend of mine and an important friend of mine. And I I'll never forget we were watching the Super Bowl at his house. Uh, you know, the year before, or probably the year before. And he, and he said, you know what I really want to do? He said, I want to just be one of the guys. I do not want to lead a tour. I do not want, I just want to ride like you guys do. And, um, and I'd like to go the vertical length of South America and, uh, and not make it a tour. Uh, it's pretty interesting because uh, we sat there and started coming up with some level 
of an invitation list. And uh, one of our concepts was no matter how many people we invite, there will only be four or five that we'll end up with. And uh, that was not the case. We invited, I want to say we invited 10 or 12. They all showed up. Uh, I, I don't think anybody, uh, everybody took it pretty seriously right from the start. But we made it very clear that this is not a tour. This is a bunch of guys riding the vertical length of South America. And, uh, and, and it worked really well. The problem that I watched happen as we got into the tough stuff in South America and some of the more, some of the challenges, everybody kept looking at Jim for, okay, now what do we do? And, uh, and I, and I felt a little bit bad for him because that's not what he wanted it to be. Uh, but we ended up, leadership came from all levels. Leadership started emerging. Uh, we did not travel in a group of 10 or 12 of us all at one time. We traveled at two or three of us at a time. Uh, we got separated at times. We, um, it, it, it absolutely was one of the most bonding experiences that I've ever had. I think we'd all feel the same way. Uh, we still communicate. That group still has, we still have a WhatsApp page or whatever, and we still communicate uh, frequently, sometimes weekly or even daily. Uh, because of the bonding experience that we went through, but it was not a tour. Uh, Jim was the original organizer, and he did use it for you know some of his uh, commercial aspects of what he does, and and I think it worked out really well. With the exception of there were times that he had to uh, probably be more than just one of the writers. Mm, yeah, because you you had a van following you. From what I remember with that uh, that show that we did, there was also issues with filming because I I think not everyone understood this was a, a filming expedition. <laughs> so there was yeah. some of that because anybody who's done any filming knows that you you end up stopping and you end up going back and doing the same thing again to get the right shot. And I think this can get on your nerves after a while. Well, it, it did, and it, it kind of came out in the in the actual. The, the end, the film that we ended up with that, but Sterling Noreen did the, uh, the filming and the film production aspect. Alphonse Palaima did the, uh, uh, the photography, uh, Jim did pay for those guys to come and they're both really good writers and they're really good at their professional craft. And I was really glad to have them along. Uh, what, one of the things that happened was, you know, it, that there was some frustration that would develop about, oh, we've got to stop here and, and run the, um, the death road five times because we got to get this, you know, the sun has to be just right. right. Or the drone has to be just right. And, uh, and, but, you know, it was in the big scheme of things, it was pretty minor. Um, but it, there were, there, you know, some frustrations develop. Um, and Jim did use that as a really important part of, uh, and I think we're really proud of the resulting book that Colin Evans wrote, one of our writers, and, and Fonzie took the photo most of the photography. Uh, we're really proud of the book and the film series. I think there's four 45-minute segments that Sterling did. I know we're really proud of that. 
So in the end, it was the right thing to do. And uh, But every once in a while, there was a little frustration that would develop about, oh, come on, we got to get going. We can't wait. We're getting in too late at night. And we did have a support crew. And the support crew, uh, Adam Tim and Jorge, we had, you know, because we camped uh, frequently and um, we had, you know, we had a chef. Jorge was our chef. Um, Adam Tim, he brought supplies. Uh, we actually had a trailer that, uh, uh, an off-road trailer that was able to carry a kitchen with him. Uh, so, because we were remote and we were remote for days at a time and frequently the van couldn't go where we went. So we had to, you know, meet along the way, you know, in different places. Why not just pack all your stuff and go like, like most people would go just you know, pack, <laughs> pack all your stuff on your own bikes and, and ride that way. I probably would have leaned that way to start with. Uh, and then I realized between parts and oil you know, we had three or four shocks go out on motorcycles. Uh, we had we needed oil. We had gear, uh, tires. I mean, whatever it was we needed, uh, we knew that someplace within the next day or two at the most, we would be able to reach that, that equipment. You know, on the other hand, um, uh, I would tend to agree with that with the exception of when you have 10 or 15, well, 10 or 12 people traveling all together, I, I think we did the right thing. What did you get from this? Did, did you come out of this, you know, sort of a, with a different view? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I had already traveled in South America and, um, on motorcycle. Uh huh. Oh, I yeah. had, and, uh, and I, and I absolutely love it. I mean, I don't like South America. I, it's, it's incredible to me. But I came out with a deeper understanding of um, uh, the people, the cultures, uh, the, you know, the activities of some of the most remote places because we actually went more remote doing the vertical length where before I just did three or four countries. So your previous trips to this, then, um, can you talk about the one maybe that was your first one? Well, the first one was, uh, actually there was four of us and, uh, we went down and followed the Dakar and it was Argentina, Bolivia, and Peru and Ecuador. But we, it was absolutely fantastic, but this was different. This was marching through you know, country by country, riding the spine of the Andes. Um, and uh, we were remote for a much longer period of time. And uh, and it was more, um, you, you mix with the locals a lot more because when you're following the Dakar, uh, the locals all think you're king of the world if you're on a motorcycle and it, and it actually Jim got to be a little bit challenging because you couldn't even stop for fuel and even when you tell them no 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 I'm not with the race I'm just following the race they didn't care you were on a motorcycle and you were an American <laughs> and, uh, and so I didn't get to experience uh, South America the way I wanted to until Expedition 65. So that's, that's a different side. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, following the Dakar to be, it'd be all, all rush and 
and um, sort of spectacular things going on there. Whereas you're digging into the countries and like you say, you're mixing with the locals. Now, now you mentioned earlier, you, you said about learning and, and, and making a connection. So Expedition 65 was sort of your, I guess, your, your door into that. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it was the first time I'd ridden in Australia and, um, and it was easy to connect. Uh, but Expedition 65 uh, really allowed me to uh, kind of this stop and deeper connection to culture, the way people lived. Uh, I mean, if you're at 14, 15,000 feet and uh, connect with people that live in a dirt hut at 14 or 15,000 feet and uh, and uh, and their primary world is alpacas. Uh, you, you learn a lot and you learn a lot in a hurry about, you know, how they survive and how they function. What do you do with that? I mean, what, what is, how does it change you? Boy, uh, I'll tell you, it's it's a tough one for me because I challenge myself. Um, I use this quote all the time that a friend of mine, I picked it up from a friend of mine, and um, and it's adventures go out, adventures come back and tell people everything that they've done, and an explorer goes out and uh, tells everybody what they've learned, and I feel like uh, I have a lot of learnings. And those learnings, it's really critical and important that those learnings should be shared. But, you know, how do you share them? What do I do with them? Where do I take them? What uh, what media do I use? Uh, you know, right now, I periodically I'll go do a uh, at the College of Idaho or uh, a high school students or whatever. Uh, but what do I do with that and how do I share it? It's, 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 it's a little bit of a challenge that I want to try to figure out. It is difficult to take something that you've, you've experienced and then pass that on, you know, to talk to somebody else about it. I mean, you, you've been to a Horizons Unlimited meet. You know, I've never been to one and I'd really like to do that. Mm, yeah, that'd be, that would be a great venue for you. But I mean, that's yeah. what that's all about is, is going and, and telling other people, you know, what it's like and giving them an idea, but, but nothing beats actually doing it yourself. And it, it's kind of like photographers. I mean, the photographers have to deal with this. You know, you're, you've got a, a three-dimensional landscape and you've got every, everything else that goes along with it, the smells and the feelings, uh, temperature and all of those sorts of things. And you have to transform that to two-dimensional and then get that message across. That's sort of yeah. what you're talking about. No, it is. And, you know, you think about, uh, you know, I, I want people to be interested in my uh, amateur in photography. I want people to, I want to be able to show somebody a picture and somebody to be interested in that. I also want people to be interested in a picture that I took of an, two really old ladies in Quito, Ecuador, uh, that were just sitting along the side of an old building and uh, and sharing lunch. Uh, and I want to tell the story of how um, I connected with these ladies in some way, uh, using Google Translate, by the way, um, because my Spanish wasn't good enough and they didn't actually understand what I was saying. I want to be able to share that also. Uh, I want to be able to share the stories of... Um, going to a high a middle school in China 
and speaking to a group of students in an auditorium and how excited they were to have an American speak to them about traveling in their country. Um, I'd like to talk to Muslim people more about being in Istanbul uh, for the first day of Ramadan and what that meant, you know, what I experienced. And, and, but those things are hard to, um, it's not like there's a venue for those things. But it's, it, 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 I think it's important to me to tell what I learned and ask more questions because I don't think I have it right all the time. What kind of things do you learn? Like you mentioned the, the, the two women that you use Google Translate to talk to, um, you photograph them. What do you get from that? Well, I, you know, I think it's, you know, when you set and visit, when you can have some level of understanding and you, I want to know what motivates them, what inspires them. Uh, you know, how did they, have they lived here all their life? Um, how do they support themselves? Uh, where do they live? So on and so forth. There's, there's kind of a common uh, denominator. Uh, you know, no matter where you are, I'm pretty convinced of this around the world that it's, it's kind of like uh, there's a certain amount of faith that people have either in each, in their, in, in, in God or a God. Uh, there's a certain amount of faith they have in each other and their family. Um, I think that they all f uh, operate off of hope. And, um, and then there's a charity that happens literally all over the world. And you put those things together, faith, hope, and charity, and you kind of go, oh, I get it. Uh, I really understand how it works uh, when somebody's living in a dirt hut in some remote place in Tajikistan, as an example. Is it the inequities th that you're interested in? I mean, you know, th that tends to be the things we hear a lot about. That tends to be the photographs that we see. Somebody living in impoverished conditions, at least to us anyway, us North Americans who are very privileged. Is that what interests you? Yeah. You know, I think it's the inequity to some degree. Um, I'm really probably more interested. Uh, the inequity is real, but I'm really I'm more interested in how do they function with this perceived inequity that I have. So I pull up uh, and with me and two or three other writers. And so we pull up and and go into somebody's home and literally eat with a with a family, uh, and it's. I want to know what, how do they hold it together? What motivates them? What does inclusion mean to them? When somebody pulls up on a twenty five thousand dollar motorcycle, now they don't know the price, and it's really funny. They all ask the price, and uh, and we jokingly say a oh, hundred dollars. You know, and they laugh. And but the point is, is it's really understanding how happy people can be. And 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 I come from a pretty privileged world and I think I'm a very privileged individual. But that's not the way that everybody in the world lives and operates but a whole lot of those people seem to be doing really, really well from what I would consider a fairly unprivileged uh, 
with uh, significant um, shortcomings, whether it's food or clothes or education. But frequently I see this happiness and it's interesting to understand where that happiness comes from. So what you're saying is it seems that those people that have less are happier than the people who have more. And, and if that's the case, does it make you want to come back and shed all your possessions? <laughs> <laughs> well, it hasn't. I, I, you know, I don't know as though they're happier. I just noticed this uh, sense of uh, there's so much, uh, you know, uh, I wish I could think of the guy's name from National Geographic that wrote a book. And I mean, wrote a did a video production called uh, Celebrating What's Right with the World. And, um, and I know when that little video production was just blew me away, probably watched it 15 or 20 times. And I think that's the issue. Uh, they have the, so many people have the ability to celebrate what their perspective is. They celebrate what's right with their world and, uh, and they enhance what's right with their world. And they're proud of what's right with their world. And uh, I know it's all relative, but I think it, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm going to come home and sell everything off and live in some level of poverty. Uh, what I am saying is I think that it's pretty amazing how, what we can experience when we really put ourselves out there. And I think getting ourselves in a position where we really get into that part of the world and, and, and get close to people. Now, not everybody wants you in their home having, you know, lunch. Uh, but when you can, we want to take advantage of it. I, I, I want to take advantage of it. It seems to me that if you were to graph it, you know, the, the satisfaction graph, it, it almost seems like those people that we often hear about who have very little that the people meet in other countries seem very satisfied with their life. And yet the people who have more always seem to be less satisfied. I mean, there's a lot more bitching and complaining going on here in, in North America about the way things are. And we've got it so good. I mean, we, we look at things like running water and electricity and we think nothing of it. Matter of fact, we, we fully expect it to be there for us. We expect all, all this infrastructure to be there for us. And yet we still find things to complain and yet over and over you find People that are in, in these impoverished places, they seem so satisfied. At least they appear to to us. And it makes you wonder, is that the case? Is, is there is there something to do with that, you know, with having more? I mean, do you recognize that? Or are we not really making the connection? Do we not see past that veneer of meeting someone uh, and being the, the uh, rich foreigner? Well, yeah, I, there's, there's actually no doubt about it that um, I... I I, I am so happy and feel so much gratitude for the life that I have here in the United States. I have so much to be um, grateful for and to be thankful for. Uh, at the same time, everything's kind of based on expectations. And I think everything's based on what uh, what perspective you come from. And, and I think if we don't uh, have, you know, for me, it was important and it still is very important for me to go gain perspective from others that, that are totally different than where I come from or what I've experienced. Uh, but it's, it, I, I know you're right, 
Jim, and I know that uh, that happens out there. Um, but I I don't feel like um, I, I I honestly feel like that these individuals that uh, we get to cross. You know, I remember going. We were in northern Peru at a very high elevation. Let's just say maybe even fifteen, sixteen thousand feet, and we went through this little village and. And it was a dirt road right through, and it was a nice sunny day, and um, and you could tell that there was a generator for this, and there were probably a hundred people lived there, and and it was really interesting to me the way they were so anxious to wave at somebody coming through their village, and uh, and and you know so you stop and you. You know, they want to climb on the motorcycle or they want to give you a high five or that's really important to get to connect with people at that level. Um, every once in a while, somebody will, you know, will, you know, if you say, can I look inside your home? Um, you know, you're, you're pretty careful. You don't force your, you know, that intrusion on anybody unless they're really open, you know, to you doing things like that. So. It's a good experience for me. Do you think we should feel guilty? You know, I mean, you go through and you're, you're, you know, you're super rich, like I said, you know, compared to the, to many of these people. Should we feel some sort of guilt with that? No, uh, I don't think we should feel guilty. What I think we should feel is, um, I think we should understand. And I think that we should uh, take our, first of all, if we don't have curiosities about the way the rest of the other, the world works, I, I'm concerned about, uh, what the world will look like, you know, in, in decades to come. Uh, so I think curiosity is an important thing. I think that, uh, understanding, uh, the fact that, um, we do live differently. Um, uh, I have this great picture of my friend, Evan Firstman in, uh, and I, and this was Northern Peru. And he was sitting with an iPhone uh, with two girls, young girls, like 12-year-olds or 14-year-olds or something like that, and that lived in this shack, and they cooked, they were cooking lunch for us, and the kitchen just had a hole in the roof that the smoke went out. But I remember he was showing them a photo of his dog and his wife. And they were thrilled about the iPhone, but what they were really thrilled about is to relate to Evan's life and the dog, you know, and his wife and, you know, and where he lived and things like that. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to connect to people that we're not taking advantage of if we don't travel. That's an interesting point. You feel that they're getting something from it as well. They're not uh, like, cause you could instantly think that it could be just envy. You know, they just see you coming in with your expensive thing and the ability to travel. But, but what you're seeing is they're actually getting something from it. Well, I think so. So, so if we, you know, Anthony Bourdain used to talk and I'm a big Anthony Bourdain. Um, I mean, I just thought the guy was fantastic. But he used to talk about uh, moving through life and leaving little marks on the world just by connecting to people. And I think, um, you know, that's exactly what I like to be involved with. It's it's exactly the way I want to connect. And if I can leave, 
you know, my little mark with the two girls or if I can meet, leave my little life, uh, I mean, just kind of connect and leave something with the two older ladies in Quito. Uh, you know, I think that's really the objective to uh, connecting with people. And here again, I don't think we get to do it unless we get out and travel. Who's Anthony Bourdain? Anthony Bourdain's the uh, guy that did all the food stuff and did a lot of travel study. And um, and he actually, uh, and I don't, I, I still don't understand why he actually committed suicide, you know, a few years back. But he did travel uh, blogs and information and actually had a television show, wrote a couple books on travel. Mm. Yeah, I know the name and I know roughly what he does. I, I, th- I was thinking sh- to chef and travel. What makes him so big in your mind? Well, I think, I think he got it. I remember he used to talk about um, that, that travel isn't always pretty. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's not always comfortable. Mm. Uh, sometimes it breaks your heart. You know, that, that's the way he communicated. Um, and, um, but, but it leaves these marks um, on your memory and it kind of reaches into your soul and says, and it tells us this is what we've experienced. And, and, I, and I, that was the way he would talk, in it, whether it's his books or his television shows or whatever. You'd mentioned going through Muslim countries. Can you talk a bit about that? I and mean, what was that like? And what, for, yeah. and what did you expect before you went? <laughs> You know, um, I, I, I got to admit that traveling through, um, oh, nine or 10 Muslim countries, uh, it, it, it had me so, I was so curious and it had me so enthusiastic to go do it. But I also, uh, had a little bit of, um, anxiety about, uh, my, possibly my perspective on Muslim and Islamic faith and so on and so forth. It started in Istanbul and um, we went in a few days early before we got started and it was the first day and evening of Ramadan and and when I was in charge of, in, excuse me, in front of the uh, uh, Mosque Sophia with this amazing park out front uh, and all how we were welcome to have meals with everybody uh, when they saw that we weren't eating and uh, they're more than happy to have you join them. What an incredible and wonderful experience. You know, we traveled through those countries during Ramadan, so we got to see lots of different versions of Ramadan and uh, saw where it was a very disciplined um, exercise of faith. And we also got to experience where uh, it wasn't disciplined at all and, and, and literally ignored. Um, so I think the Ramadan piece was pretty important. Visiting the mosque, uh, having uh, had a couple, we had a couple of big discussions with the imams from the uh, various mosques. Um, and I think more than anything, what we found is we found people that are like us. And, uh, you know, earlier when I said something about faith, hope, and charity, 
I, you know, these people, Muslim people, they were absolutely phenomenal. Of course, there's radical Muslims. Of course, there are people that are um, uh, just absolutely um, evil. But what we got to experience w was a very kind-hearted group of people that took us in and uh, shared lots of their life with us as we traveled all the way through to China. How do you deal with ideological differences? You, you know, you're, cause I mean, there, there can be things like, well, let me, let me simplify this. If you were a vegetarian and they're slaughtering a goat, that's got to bother you at your core. And I mean, there's certain things like with, with the, the way women are treated in some countries, et cetera. How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you go in there and sort of make a connection with people on one level, but have these ideological differences, fundamental differences? Yeah. Um, you know, Jim, I think it's, it, it, no, it absolutely bothers you. And I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a vegetarian, so, but I will say, uh, so here's an example writing. So there's, we're writing through Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and on, on a dirt road for a few days on one side of the river was, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, on the other side of the river is Iran, excuse me, is Afghanistan. And, uh, and that really troubled me because I could see people in Afghanistan knowing how dramatically different. Uh, I can tell by the way women dress, um, you know, uh, when you move from one region to the next region to the next region. Uh, um you know, how that we've just moved through a different um, uh, culture, if you will, uh, what schools look like. If you see children coming out of schools in Harag, Tajikistan, and, um, and there's little girls and little boys coming out, you go, wow, this is really good. I'm glad to see it. On the other hand, if you're in another country and you just see uh, just boys coming out of school, you kind of, you know, you, it really, it's troubling for me. And, and it's an evolution that the world has to go through. And, but it's, if, if they ever go through it, but I will tell you, it really got my attention when I'm literally a hundred yards across that river, there were was Afghanistan, and we would have probably wound, we wound in and out of Afghanistan, uh, but knowing full well that that's a different world across that river, it it'll get your attention in a hurry. What do you do about it? I mean, what can you do about it? Well, I don't know, so we can do anything about it. I, what I do know is that um, that I think we have to recognize it, and I think we have to acknowledge the differences and um, make sure that we really digest the fact that uh, there's a lot of different differences in the world. Um, I know when uh, we were at Harag, Tajikistan, it's right on the Afghani border. I mean, literally the town, the city is right on the Afghani border. Small, small town. Um, and, uh, and they told us, you do not want to cross the border. And, uh, and I would have loved to have literally cross the border 
and went to experience Afghanistan uh, in a more personal way. Uh, but I guess there were bounties or something on Americans. Or, uh, and they anyway, they said, you just don't want to do that. But, oh, I see. For your own personal safety. Not, right. Not for what for your own personal see. safety. Uh. But I would have really liked to have understood further how, you know, are we are we progressing in Afghanistan and Pakistan? Are we not progressing? Uh, what will it look like in 10 or 20 or even 100 years from now? Do you ever find that when you go to a place like that and you, and you see something that you don't agree with fundamentally, that it makes you feel like you just don't want to go? Uh, yeah, it's a, I think initially I want to go and I want to, I want to connect. I want to be... I, I want to understand on a more fundamental, kind of that feel thing that I talked about. I want to do more than think about it. I want to feel it. Um, but the, uh, I mean, in Turkmenistan's pretty good example is, uh, boy, you pull into the city and and it's all white, it's clean, it's neat, it's in uh, Ashgabat. And, and, and so you're just going, wow. Um a, a few days of understanding, you know, that it's not quite as you know, it's not quite what it's billed as, and it could be a more repressed society. Um, uh, and then all of a sudden, you're kind of going, you know, what I've had enough. I want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a place I want to spend a lot of time. I mean, so that can happen to you. What was China like for you? So China, um, I was really anxious to get to China, um, mainly, first of all, it was a thrill because um, I, I have a Chinese driver's license now. And, um, and, and that was, for some reason, a real exciting thing to know that uh, I have a Chinese driver's license. And it took a couple of days to get through the border. Uh, they did do, we were under a pretty high level of scrutiny when we first came through the border. Uh, we did have to have somebody with us um, at all times. Uh, you just couldn't wander around China freely. Uh, but, you know, I've been to China a lot uh, with my work. And um, But when I went through the Uyghur Muslim country in the West, um, I, you know, I struggled with it actually because uh, this, 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 these people, they, they're a, they are a people in the Chinese government that they consider themselves uh, Muslims, and uh, the Chinese government uh, does have re-education camps uh, for the Uyghur Muslims to make them think the way they want them to be. Um, we were there when the New York Times posted their expose on the re-education camps. Uh, we went by them. We rode by them. You could see them alongside the highway. I pulled up to the gate of one of them and asked if this was a re-education camp uh, through, again, Google Translate. And, uh, and it was. Uh, they gave me kind of some kind of answer that I didn't quite understand, but that's what it was. The, uh, I think it's, I think China, you know, there's a lot of real happy, good 
people in China. And I have, and I know a lot of them and, and I've enjoyed them. But it was troubling for me to go through the Uyghur Muslim province of Xinjiang in, in the West. Uh, I never really relaxed about that until we got over into uh, Gansu or over into more central China. Yeah, I always think that that's got to be a tough one. I haven't been to China, but you know, when I hear about people who've been there, it's so restrictive. Now you were there for business as well. And I imagine that that would be fairly restrictive as well. Well, yeah, it can be. Uh, you just, you learn to play, uh, you know, by the rules, you learn to play through the processes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's more restrictive than working in the United States, but, um, our company played a pretty important role, particularly to French fries, to, and examples to McDonald's in China. And uh, McDonald's knew how to play by the rules. We knew how to play by the rules. And, uh, and we did, we actually did fairly well. Don't get me wrong. Periodically, there would be an issue. But um, it seemed to work pretty well. It's because the company you used to work for, it's actually the company that started the frozen French fry. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's right. They, they all come from Simplot, this one company for all the McDonald's. I mean, that's uh, that's quite the feat there and, and quite, the, um, quite the business model, I imagine. Well, originally that's the case. Today, of course, that's not the case. But uh, originally, uh, that's what happened. It was between J.R. Simplot and Ray Kroc, a handshake deal to produce frozen french fries. Mm. But back, back to what we were saying about China. So you find that you, you can sort of get by with sort of a relationship, I guess, with somebody who maybe you don't agree with all of their ways, but you find areas that you can agree with them. Is that sort of the same thing that you find when you're going to a country like some of the Muslim countries where you don't agree with necessarily all the thought processes, all the way they live? Yeah, I... I think I think you do it out of respect. I uh, I mean I may not like what they eat for dinner and how they process you know cook their food or whatever. Um, I may I mean there's there's a lot of things that we I think it's really important to respect the local culture and the local activity. The thing that probably troubles me more than anything it's it's not the food it's not the uh, the way they live i mean what really troubles me is the humanitarian when when there's a gap in the humanitarian issues uh that really that really troubles me and um and 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 to some degree we just have to hope that those humanitarian issues evolve over you know hundreds of years i guess so if somebody's asking you how they get started, what do you respond? Well, I think, first of all, it's kind of like, just go do it. You know, make sure that um, you're comfortable traveling like this in the U.S. And then go find, I mean, South America is, uh, I think, a pretty practical place to go. But, you know, I um, there's, some, there's some motorcycle tour groups that are really impressive. And... Uh, uh, Rawhide, Jim Hyde, we talked about Jim. Uh, of course, he's one. He's very good in South America. And I think being with those tour groups is a good way to do it. The experiences that you can have with one of these groups, uh, you know, I never thought that I'd 
really that keen on being with a group on one of these tours and and after I've done it a few times. I I really like it and it's really been a good experience for me. So you you do a little of both you travel by yourself or you go with a group? Yeah, well, I don't know so I've ever tra- I don't I'm just trying to think here. I've never traveled internationally by myself. I've always been with somebody else, uh, but I'm more and more convinced that traveling with uh, one of these tour groups that really know their stuff and that are because, you know, I, I have a little bit of a style that I I just soon wing it um, on some of these things. So I've got to be with it. If I'm with Helge Peterson, I know that it's well organized, but there's a lot of space for you to wing it. You know, you, I know how his tours work because I've been on one of his tours and, uh, and I'll absolutely go on more of them in the future. I know how Jim Hyde's tours work as an example. Uh, I've been on a, um, couple with uh, groups of friends of mine that we've done it with, uh, Enduro Park Andalusia from Spain. And so, um, I'm, I'm good to go. With tour groups, I just don't want to ride it like lemmings where you line up and everybody just follows the leader. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not my type of touring. I have no interest in that. So these are the kind of trips where you have a, a route and, and places to meet and you're going off and doing your own thing. Like when you're mentioning you, you're stopping and asking questions, you're kind of on your own at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. That's for me, that's the way I have to do it. And, and, and I, and I still, you know, what I go do, uh, what I go by myself, um, you know, without, without a doubt. And, uh, and I'm more than happy to do that. In fact, I would even like it, but I will say some of these tour groups, they're a lot of fun. You bond and learn a lot from a lot of other people, but I need room to wing it. And, uh, you just have to ask yourself, you know, what kind of tour do you want to be on? But I highly recommend people joining, you know, some of these global tours. As a way to explore. Right. Is it more the organizational for, that you're attracted to or, or the safety aspect? Well, I, th- I think some of both. Um, an example, uh, I mean, the organizational stuff. I mean, if, if you have motorcycle shipping. Uh, I mean, an example is right now I have a motorcycle set in Heidelberg, Germany because of COVID. I can't move it. You know, I can move it, but I'm going to leave it there and I'll go travel the Eastern Bloc countries um, uh, by myself and I, or I anticipate by myself. I might be with others depending on everybody's schedule, but it won't be with a tour group is the point. Mm. Uh, would I go to NordCap on it? Absolutely. You know, that type of stuff. If I were to go to do Africa as an example, I'd really like to do that with somebody like Helge Peterson that has really knows Africa and that um, knows how to move in and out and make sure that I, you know, that I can capture my experience the way I, uh, you know, all the things that I'd like to do. You're 67 now? I am. How long do you think you're going to keep going with riding like this? (laughs) Well, I'd like to think I'm a young 67 um, and that I have a lot of years. Uh, I have, uh, I've got the next three years scheduled and, uh, and then I'll probably, 
you know, and those, and those are pretty much hardcore global trips. Um, uh, and then I would guess in my seventies, I'll spend more time in places like, um, Canada and Europe and, you know, places like that. But I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, until I can't do it anymore. Maybe, I don't know, could I do that another 10 years? I'd, I'd sure like to think I could. It's funny, you know, with age, it seems old until you get there. And then when you get there, you think it's not that old. Well, I agree with you. And and, and it's not only that, Jim, but it, I, I thought it would take a lot longer to get here. <laughs> yeah. It just seemed to move a little too quick. Mm. <laughs> you, you're saying that you're still riding rough stuff though. So how are you staying in shape? Well, uh, so we live, living in Idaho, first of all, you're out a lot. We just came back from a week long hiking trip in, uh, Southern Utah. Um, we mountain bike a lot, my wife and I do. And actually, um, she asked me this morning, are you going to start back on the Peloton now that is, that we can't, that we can't, uh, mountain bike outside. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the next few days, but I work pretty hard to make sure that I can keep up and uh, don't lose any ground on my fitness. Bill, great to sit and talk with you. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Jim, thank you. I've enjoyed it. And uh, I enjoy Adventure Rider Radio. That was Bill Whitaker from his home in McCall, Idaho. We've got some photos from Bill in the show notes for this episode, along with that link that I mentioned for that episode we did on Expedition 65. I think you're going to like that. We did that a while back. That's all on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Just click on the episodes link for the show notes. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcast. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.